One thing I've learned in life is that I'm much better at judging consequences than probability. So if the consequence is somebody dies or I lose every bit of capital that I have in my life, I'm going to have to set the bar a lot higher or I'm going to have to find people with competencies that are that are much higher than my own to go into that environment. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. Well, today we have got a real treat. I'm going to be joined by Will Gadd, who is one of the top adventure sport athletes in the entire world. And he lives right in Canmore, Alberta. And he's been at it for more than 30 years. He's safely led numerous large TV and research expeditions into highly dangerous and rewarding environments. He's climbed Niagara Falls. In fact, he was the first person to do that, a frozen Niagara Falls. He's taught kids, doctors, oil sand workers, how to positively manage risk with direct, entertaining, and effective tools he's learned through a lifetime of living on the edge, literally. He teaches people how to apply tools to safely build teams and resiliency, how to succeed in low-knowledge environments, and do what experts say was impossible. He is presented to more than 200 groups ranging from ExxonMobil to incarcerated youth groups. Most recently, he and his teams have found new life forms in glacial caves for a Discovery TV show, and he helped a planetary scientist sample the world's oldest rocks in Canada's Arctic. It's my pleasure today to welcome Will Gadd. Will, such a pleasure to welcome you to Unleashed. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. So tell us, where are you in the world today? Today, I'm in Canmore, Alberta, which is in my home, and I'm in my home office here, and I just got back from a shoot, so I'm a little bit scrambled. <laughs> I was shooting this morning with Arcteryx and Grotto Canyon, and we're a bunch of new prototypes and things like that that we're checking out, and uh, ice climbing and, and shooting all of that, and then straight into this conversation with you. So, um, yeah, I'm still in my ice climbing clothes and, and good to go. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. And it makes it even more authentic. I wouldn't have it in any other way. Yeah, that's kind of how I was envisioning you coming into this conversation, no matter what. And I, I think you said you, there was 25 centimeters of brand new snow. So does the snowfall that came in the last 24 hours, does that help the shoot or hurt the shoot? Changed it. You know, you have to adapt. That's the first rule of life is to adapt. And what we wanted to do today didn't work. We wanted to go into a different area, but it was minus 20 and windy. And with that much snow, it would have taken us all day to get in there, and then we wouldn't have gotten our shoot done. But where we went, the snow made it look really great, made it look better than it normally looks. So it all worked out. So again, just standard process. Everything goes wrong, and then you make something great out of it. Totally. Well, and that is one of the things of many that I am so excited to talk to you about today. And people that tune into this podcast are typically business leaders uh, of mid-sized companies all around the world. And so they might be sitting there thinking, well, 
What does a, uh, an adventure athlete, a world-class adventure athlete and risk taker, death defier, have to do with business? And there is so much as they are going to, uh, to be privy to uh, here. And you and I had a chance to first meet in a coffee shop a handful of months ago, and I just couldn't believe some of the stories that you told and how applicable they were to everyday life, never mind the business community. And so adapting to the environment is just one of those things I want to talk to you about. But I, Will, I, I thought where I might take you, it's kind of like a Barbara Walters special, if you'll humor me, is to go back <laughs> early in your life. Because one of the notes I took that really stood out for me was you were kind of a little bit of a rebel or a delinquent right from early days. <laughs> and you told me that your grandfather shipped you off to boarding school. And I was just, I couldn't help but ask you, how do you think that experience shifted or shaped who you became? Yeah, well, <laughs> starting with the idea, of, what I needed was stimulation. You know, I, I, a lot of us are in the business world, it's the same. We're, we're trying to do new things. And that's what we thrive on is, is doing new things and, and coming up with interesting ideas and executing them. Just as a teenager in Jasper, Alberta, which is a very small town, there weren't a lot of options. And so there's positive stimulating things and there's negative stimulating things. And unfortunately, um, with the lack of, of positive stimulation, I started doing things that got the attention of the local police. And, uh, and I was just bored, basically. And fortunately, my grandfather saw this and was like, hey, you need to go to a school that will actually challenge you a little bit. And um, he really wisely allowed me to go to this place called the White Mountain School in New Hampshire, which was about as far from my small town as you could ever get. You know, there, a lot of the kids there, they're from very different worlds. They're from I didn't grow up with much wealth or, or just didn't grow up that way. And, and all of a sudden I'm at the school where, you know, there's private jets and things, you know, it's a different world. And I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the kid from Cadmore, Alberta. And it, it was a bit of a shock, but what it did do is fire me up. It was like, hey, this is actually difficult and results matter in school. In my town, they really didn't. Not that many people were going to go to university or go on in life. And, uh, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But um, for me, it was a really good challenge. And so I, I rose to it and it worked out. I'm very grateful to my grandfather and probably all of us have that one or two mentors in life where, the, where people are like, yeah, without that person, I'd be in a very different world. And that's for sure what my grandfather did. Well, and exposing you, like you say, exposing you to a different part of the world and just a whole different sort of realm of, uh, of possibility. And it reminds me a little bit too, Will, that of all of the death-defying adventures that you have been on, the thing that caught my attention about you even more so was how eloquent of a writer that you are. And I was actually captivated by the way that you tell stories, and in, in particular with the written word. And I, it was interesting to learn that you've actually spent quite a bit of time as a writer and an editor. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that phase of your career. Yeah, again, a good a good mentor made a difference. I went to, so I, I was lucky. I went to this boarding school and that allowed me to get my grades up and sort of take education a bit more seriously. And then I went to a good school in the U.S. for, for college. And um, at that school, I, I initially thought I was going to be a doctor. I thought that was a really great idea. But then I met organic chemistry and that really put a crimp in my outdoor programming in the afternoon. <laughs> and I thought, right, I can't be a doctor. You know, what's the, what's the next thing I could be? And I thought, all right, I'll be a lawyer. And uh, I went and worked for a district judge in Colorado Springs where I was going to school. Great judge, Judge Hall. I owe this guy, again, a huge debt. But uh, after working with him for about the, 
you were having these, we'd have these great conversations as chambers. This is a federal district judge. This guy has some, you know, some juice in that world. And we'd have these hour long conversations about what life was meant to be. And I would go down to the jail and interview a lot of kids who, who honestly were a lot like I was. I, I just wound up getting a break and they didn't. So I'd interview these kids in jail and try to figure out what's going on with them. And, and after a month of this, Judge Hall said, you know, you're, you're argumentative and you're, you're not too stupid. You can be a lawyer. <laughs> this is a possibility, but you really love this outdoor thing. And, and I, I think you will do really well with that if you can find a way to make it work. And have you thought about writing about it? And so I started writing about it. And I would go to climbing competitions, which is what I was doing, and then write about them and, and share the stories of what people had done and one thing led to another, and then I was working in publishing, and yeah, a whole another career got going. Well, and with, how long was that a full time job for you working in publishing? Well, I I got out of school, and I I was I knew that I had to develop this, I had to develop some way to make a living, right? I I'd, I'd been really pretty poor a lot of my life, and I I thought it would be nice to have more than you know five dollars to my name. I thought you know, so I I got a I was climbing magazine's first ever intern. And so that meant I was available to get coffee and things like that. Um, but it was great. And, and again, good mentors there. I, I really listened to them and learned how to write there and then started um, working at other magazines, more general sports magazines, still outdoor oriented, but running and you know mountain biking and road biking magazines. And one magazine I was working at, I was the editor at that magazine and the, and the magazine kept getting smaller, which really put a crimp in my editorial. I was like, ah, oh, you know, we need more. So I went into the boss, the guy who owned the whole company. He owned a fleet of magazines. And I was like, hey, I could use some more space for my editorial. You know, like, what can we do about this? And he said, well, that's a good question. And you're now the publisher. And I was like, what does that mean? It's like, you got to sell the ads and run the ad sales team and run the editorial team. And the other guy just quit. And he was doing a lousy job. So you're probably not going to do any worse. Let's see how you do. And I knew nothing about sales at that point. And I was an editorial guy, you know, I wrote words and uh, all of a sudden I'm working with a sales team and that was one of the best lessons of my life. I think sales 101 should be a huge part of every school curriculum because that's, you know, to a large part, what we're all doing every day. And I remember going my first sales call, I went into this bike shop, you know, this is a regional sports magazine. We have bicycle shop advertisers and I go in there, I'm like, my magazine kicks ass, you know, and it's great and you should buy an ad. And he looked at me, he's like, you obviously know nothing about my business or what I do. And why don't you learn something and come back once you've done that? <laughs> it's brutal. And he was right. And so I went and learned about his business. And the next time I walked in there with my, with my sales guy, we had an idea for him. It's like, hey, we put on bike races. Why don't you have a booth at our bike race? We'll, we'll do that for free. And we'll, we'll give you a little bit of a prominent placement in, in some of the things we're writing. And we'd really love it if in return, you could help us out and do some advertising. And he was like, now you're talking. <laughs> and that was the beginning of a great relationship. And that guy was, again, he didn't know it, but he was a huge mentor. And I had to listen to him versus tell him what he wanted. It's like, what can I do for you? And um, so next thing you know, I'm, I'm publishing magazines. And then I started magazines that went into college and university newspapers all over the U.S. And um, so that was sort of another division. And then I started an events company as well um, because it, the events needed upgrading. So yeah, now I'm in my late 20s in Colorado and I'm running three or four divisions of this company and, and uh, things are going pretty well. It was, it was a great education in sales and marketing and just listening to people and giving them what they actually wanted for their businesses and managing a pretty good crew of people, managing a, 
a fairly, for a young guy, a fairly large staff. And yeah, there you are. I'm, I was in the business world. <laughs> I didn't start out to do that, but there I am. Well, and so it sounds like you were sort of building a bit of a career path for yourself there. So some might say, well, what, why didn't you sort of stay on that, on that more business path? Was becoming an adventure athlete always a goal of yours or was that sort of an accidental discovery yet? So at what point did you have that sort of epiphany that, oh, there is another path for me and I'm going to take that? I think we all wonder in life, like, what could we be if we just taken that opportunity or tried to do something? And I've always tried to take opportunities as they're presented, you know, whether it's being a publisher of a magazine, running events. And another thing that I'd started doing in that period in my life is I started a qualitative market research company, mainly for big footwear companies. And, and this started out, Nike was like, there's this new thing called trail running. Do you know anything about trail running? Can you get together a group of trail runners and talk about trail running? I had no idea that there were these things called focus groups. And next thing you know, I'm running focus groups for Nike and Reebok and Fila and a bunch of other big footwear companies. And through that, I started interacting with their athletes and understanding what athletes did for these companies and what their value was and why. And then I sort of was about 29 and, and everybody has this moment in life where you're like, you have opportunities. Should you take it or should you stay on the safe path? And, and Fila actually offered me a little bit of a, of a kind of a retainer to work on their footwear product and run some qualitative market research and then also be an athlete and work on some new clothing they were designing. And I just had to wonder, like this ice climbing thing that I'd loved ever since I was a kid and this mountain stuff, how good could I get at it? And was there a way to make a living at it? And I, th I thought about it and I was like, I think there is. And then there's this thing called the X Games and I placed fifth in the first X Games for ice climbing. You know, first was like $10,000, second was like five, and I placed fifth. And, you know, I think I got like a set of steak knives, right? <laughs> it sucked. And so all these factors are kind of going on in my brain. I'm like, this is an opportunity. Like if I could win the X Games and do this work with Fila and do some of the other things that I'm doing, maybe I could make a living. And then I would, you know, that would, it was an opportunity. And I, and I could see the future, and, but I didn't quite know if it was going to work. In fact, I, I wasn't sure at all. But I didn't want to be 55, my age now. I'd be like, I had a chance and I just walked away from it. So I took it. I walked into my boss's office and I was like, John, you've been awesome. You've given me a great career. I'm doing really well here in all ways, but I'm going to go and be a professional icicle climber. And he looked at me and he's like, you are an idiot. You're going to be back in six months. You can't be a professional icicle climber. Nobody does that. And I was like, I'm going to go try to win the X Games. I'm going to sell everything that, you know, I've got this brand new fancy car. I've got this house and, and uh, I'm going to just devote myself to this. This is what I want to do. I, I want to give it a shot because I don't want to be in my fifties or something and looking back and wonder what I could have been. Could I have won the X games? So I quit. And uh, yeah, <laughs> everybody's like, you're crazy to do that. You're, you're a nut bar. It sounds to me like you were leveraging something you like to call anticipatory regret, you know, kind of fast forward yeah. to, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to your future okay. self. Something else that you said there really is something I think a lot about, too, is I, I think there is something to be said for finding your calling in life. If you're lucky enough to find it or finding your unique talent or gift oftentimes means going back into your childhood and thinking about the things that really made you come alive. And it, and it sounds like you did that with ice climbing. I mean, what's your earliest memory of, climb, of ice climbing? 
wall in the backyard of my house, an ice climbing wall, because my dad had gotten into ice climbing and he wouldn't take me ice climbing. He's like, that's too dangerous for kids. And that was a good call on his part, actually. So I built this wall in my backyard and iced it down with my mom's teapot. And this is in Canada where it's really cold in the winter, right? So I iced this wall down and I'm climbing the thing. And just as I got near the top, the world started moving in this odd way. And what had happened is the wall is falling over this sort of collection of snow and stuff I'd stacked up and it fell on me and buried me. And I should have quit ice climbing right there. I mean, I should have been out, but I, I just thought it was so cool. And so I, I, I got more and more into it in high school. And that was the positive high stimulus stuff I had in high school was climbing and was kayaking. And again, great people who took me out and, and made those sports available, but that wasn't a career. You couldn't be a professional outdoor sports athlete, right? You, you, you give, your choices are doctor, lawyer, or <laughs> I tried both of those, they didn't work out. And now I was writing about them and covering them. But then again, when I left that job in Boulder, you know, I, everybody said, you're, you're crazy. That company was sold six months later. And everybody's calling me up going, what are you doing now? And I was like, I haven't really figured it out, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm writing a lot again and I'm, I'm willing to like paint houses, which I did, you know, going from a pretty high, high stress, real professional job. I was like painting houses, but that year I won the X games and I won two events. And so like $20,000 when you're living in your van and you win $20,000, you're, you're pretty much set for like at least the next couple of years, which at that age was as long as I was willing to think anyhow. <laughs> so yeah. And it was off to the, off to the races after that, I became the world's first professional icicle climber. And Will, what was that experience like for you? So you're living in that van, you're winning the X Games. Like, were, did you worry about what was going to happen next? Were you stressed out, or was it just like, did you feel like you were just completely alive? Well, I felt completely like when you execute something cool. That's that's like for me one of the best things in life. You have an idea, and then you figure out how to do it. And there's a lot of opposition. You battle through it, and most of the opposition, at least that I see, is from the individual person, whether it's me or somebody else. Like, I thought you couldn't do that. You had to have this sort of career of some kind, and it had to be in a certain way. And I still think that, and I'm still pretty driven, but it's it, overcoming that internal opposition to taking that risk. It would have been a lot safer. I had a great job. You know, I'd have continued to run magazines, develop companies. That would have been a lot safer. But winning the X Games is pretty damn cool. Well, that, that's an experience. And then going and doing the filming and the other projects I've been able to do since then, that was the upside of that risk. But I had to take a big risk. And very few people thought it would work, including me. I was like, but I, I was willing to try. And, I, and I, the older I get, the more I appreciate those moments in my life and then other people's that I'm now mentoring, where they just try. Like that spark and, and keeping it burning is just everything. Well, and, and it's interesting even too that the safe bet, if you would have stayed in your day job, that wasn't even a safe bet. That in some ways might have even been riskier with the business being sold six months later, unbeknownst to you. So you would have been living life yeah. maybe on somebody else's terms or playing it safe and the safe bet wasn't, yeah. as it turned out, the safe bet anyways. Uh, Will, I saw, <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw a quote that reminded me of you last week and it was from James Clear and it, was ba it basically said that if you want to be in the top 1%, you cannot follow 99% of people. And I wondered what are some of the things that you have done in a unique fashion to attain the level of notoriety that you have? 
But I've never sought out to gain notoriety, either either locally or internationally. And, and, and the reality here is like, if I'm in my local town, people recognize me. And I, we had a funny, a really nice interaction with the owner of the restaurant. It's like coming over, you know, it, this is really, it's, it's a nice thing, but it, you know, I can still walk through airports most of the time and, and <laughs> I'm going to be okay. But I, I never really wanted notoriety. Notoriety has been a, a byproduct of this. And I've done some interesting things, you know, climbing Niagara Falls kind of puts you on the, on the international stage, but notoriety is a byproduct. That's, that's not the goal. The goal is to do the coolest things I can think of doing with the best people in the most interesting places and survive, like to execute cool ideas. Same thing I did with, with every business project I've started. You know, I, I also started an ice and mixed climbing app, which tells people where to go and has GPS traces. And that's done really well. And, but it's the same process. Like it's a risk to start that. The safe thing is to do nothing. But if you yeah. do the safe thing, then you get nothing, and it's actually way more dangerous. So a lot of the a lot of the work that I do with companies now is encouraging them to take risks, because you know right now in, in many corporate environments, you don't want to stick your head up. You don't want to take a risk, because if you if it goes wrong, you're going to get beheaded. And people are terrified. But it's the people that, as you mentioned, that one percent that will take the risks that actually really change things. So I, I, I think oddly we've become so risk averse that the downside is becoming ever larger. We've got to keep taking those risks, even though they're uncomfortable. Nothing I do is comfortable. I'm not like I'm going to go hang on an icicle. This is going to be easier. I'm going to start a new business. It's like this is going to be interesting, and the result is worth that risk. Well, and when you say the safe bet, I, when I think about a business analogy, I think about status quo. And there is, a, there is a certain point, I think, in most people's lives and in most corporate life cycles where instead of innovation and creativity and risk-taking, it, it just becomes a, an act of preserving what we have. And we know that every day, I mean, there's, great, there's tons of research on this. And if we're just focused on preserving what we have, it's sort of a slow death of a thousand cuts that we're, that's slowly going to whittle away to, to nothing, I think, for most of us. So it, it occurs to me that if we're going to embrace this courageous mindset, this risk-taking mindset of ingenuity, of creativity and innovation that's going to keep us fresh and relevant in the marketplace, we have to be able to find a way to be comfortable in that risk. What are some ways that maybe you have done yourself or some ways that you teach groups on embracing uncertainty or embracing that discomfort of, of, of taking risks more often? I could, I could, what you just said is interesting at about five different levels. So I, I love that. I would come back on about five different parts of that. But I think one of the things is to realize that taking risks is not meant to be comfortable. It's, it's, and that's okay. I think often right right now, the whole idea is to be like happy and comfortable. And both these things are, are A, not going to last very long. Like if you're a driven person, or even if you're not a very driven person, but you value growth, then as soon as you get what you're seeking, you're going to be, it's human nature really to seek the next thing because everybody goes, well, I've got enough grain now. I'm just going to sit here, you know? They they didn't get enough for their families and everything else. Like it's satisfaction is not very much fun. It's fun for like 10 minutes. And then what's what can we do that will allow us to grow? How can we be better? 
So I, I really am, I, I, one of the biggest things I've had to learn is to be okay with being uncomfortable and to respect it and ask why am I uncomfortable? Is it just because I'm worried about things that I can actually resolve? Or is this actually a threat to my existence, either financially or, or in my case, literally, you know, if what I do, people shouldn't do. It's really dangerous. And if, but if I'm out there and I, and I go, right, I'm scared because, you know, I'm worried I'm going to look bad in front of the camera today. I'm not going to be able to function. And I have to deal with that before I can go on. But I have to accept I am never comfortable in front of the camera. I'm never comfortable starting a new project, but I have to do it anyhow. And I get comfortable by really digging into it. And, and we've talked a little bit about this, but how I get comfortable is looking at everything that's going to go wrong. You know, I, we often hear this. It's like, be positive. You know, the positive power of positive thinking, the world will manifest whatever. This is like, I don't know if I can say bullshit on your on your show, but this is bullshit. <laughs> well, you just did. You just you did, Will. Sorry. <laughs> but it's a, it's a technical term that applies really eloquently to this situation. But to do <laughs> difficult, dangerous things, and, and whether that's taking a risk in business or in life, you, you, you have to be uncomfortable and look at the downside and dig into it. And you can talk about scenario planning and everything else, but it, that's how I deal with it. Like what is going to go wrong and how am I going to deal with it so that I can make my vision real? If I'm just thinking happy thoughts, like, you know, I'll, I'll get a new ABC or whatever. That's, that's not it. How do I make things happen and what's going to take me out? And that's why I'm still alive. And it's also why I can do what I do, which people always tell me is crazy. You can't do that. It won't. I hear that all the time, or that's crazy. And then I'm like, well, why is it crazy? And then I go and do things that a lot of people say can't be done because I've looked at all the downsides. I've thought them through. I, I ha and, and I use that fear and discomfort to do that. And then when I'm finally standing there, ready to do whatever it is, I'm ready and, I, and, I'm, and I'm good to go. And I have a higher level of sort of confidence about it. So I think, yeah, but I, I think there's too much. Don't think happy thoughts. Think about all the things, things that are going to take you out or kill you. Fix them and then go forward. Yeah. Well, I, I, kinda, I, I can't help but wonder about um, so often things are worse in our imagination than they ever are in reality. Now, if a person focuses too much on the downside and on the risks, isn't there, isn't there a piece to this where you could ruminate so much that it could cause you to be paralyzed and in action. So how, what, how does a person use sort of the risk identification as a motivator versus a paralyzer, if that makes some sense? The paralysis I see in people is not from the thing they're worried about. It's from not looking at the thing they're worried about, right? And that paralyzes them. Once they actually dance with it and grapple with it, then it becomes real. And they're like, or, or it falls apart. And a good analogy, you might've been a little kid and you were afraid to look under the bed. You're like, there's a monster under there. And we kind of laugh about these little kids, but we all do this in our own lives, right? We think, oh, I can't do that because you know I might lose my job or I might, this ABC might happen. But you actually look at that and dig into it. It's like, well, do you have good skills? Can you get another job? Would it be the end of the world if you did actually lose your job? You know, how would you deal with that? And it's like, well, you know, I've actually saved up some money here, or maybe I do need to save up some more money before I take this risk. I need to do a little bit better planning. 
And then you start dancing with that fear. And, and again, it's being a little bit, instead of just accepting that uncomfort and being like, I can't take these risks because they're uncomfortable. It's like, I'm going to dig into them. I'm going to dance with them. I'm going to look under that bed and that 12 foot tall monster underneath my four foot childhood bed, it doesn't fit. And you just, you kick its ass just by looking at it. And I think, but that takes looking under the bed. And that's where most people get stopped is they don't look under the bed. They just let the monster get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they can't do anything. Yeah, it sounds like a, a little bit of exposure therapy there, but also, also like when I think about a business context, it, and uh, and even for personal life planning, it sounds like there's a little bit of scenario planning, sort of confront what are the things that reasonably could go wrong, and if they did go wrong, then what? I can see how that would be very empowering for somebody to start to realize that even if some of those worst case outcomes do occur, I'm going to be okay, or there are some things I need to do to make sure that those outcomes would be okay. So that's that's uh, that's really insightful, Will, and really helpful. So something else that you told me is that not taking risks is a bigger hazard than taking them. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah, it, it depends what level you're you're operating at. And again, I assume that many of the people that are are you know, tuned into you, there are people that want to do cool things, right? That's the goal of life. What's the coolest thing you could do and how do you make it happen, right? That's what we're all trying to figure out here. And if you don't take these risks, then the cool things don't happen. You don't start that company. You don't go out and you don't call that, you know, person up for a date. That's like, you know, the best things in my life are like my kids and and, and my relationships with other people, and those were all risks, right? We, we took them and we got great things as a result. So long-term, if we don't take those small risks along the way, or even some of the bigger ones, then we end up with a, a really boring and unhappy life where we've taken the path of least resistance. And as the song says, it leads to the garbage heap of despair. But you look at those companies that didn't take any risks, and there's, you know, every year, Thousands of companies globally fail, not because they took a risk. They fail more often because they didn't go out and actually try to innovate and do something new. You know, a lot of the companies that I used to work with, they don't exist anywhere anymore because print magazines died. And they're like, well, just ignore that digital thing. That's not going to be anything. I remember thinking, that's probably not going to work. That which is ignored gets larger, whether it's a fear or a competitor or whatever. So you, you got to grab that stuff and, and wrestle with it. And, I, and that's what I try to do. And then again, listen, listen to those fears. Don't ignore them. And as you do, as you spend more time being uncomfortable with fear and uncertainty, you get better at parsing it, in my experience. So when you're a kid, it's the monster under the bed. But as you get older, you're like, well, can I do a spreadsheet on this? Is that actually going to happen? And, and the you look at it like, no, that's not going to happen. I will get a call. Somebody will call me. I will. I won't lose all my money. Worst case scenario, and, and can I live with that outcome or not? And it's it's working in that, in splitting those risks up. So yeah, I think not taking those risks, absolutely, is going to lead to the to the garbage. You know, how many com how many companies from two hundred years ago are still here? Yeah, like, not many. Three. Yeah, not many. <laughs> there's, there's not many. Yeah. So you know, you've got to, You have to change, and you have to innovate, whether you like it or not to survive long-term. 
Well, and there's, there's, we're surrounded by stories every single day if we start watching for them where somebody took a risk that led to some kind of joyful story or life experience that they never would have had otherwise. And it, it, you're reminding me of about 20, 28 years ago, it was a couple of years after my grandfather passed away. My grandmother was on a casino bus trip and they were down in Nashville. And there was a, there was a gentleman who was also recently widowed and he took a shining to my grandmother apparently and so as the story goes he took uh, a risk by going to buy her an ice cream cone and then coming to sit on a bench with her just before the bus was boarding to come home and they ended up being married for 25 years and he just passed away last year but anytime i'm sort of stumbling with taking a risk that i think could lead to a better life experience i think about if there's such a term my step-grandfather bill who bought my grandma that ice cream cone and and uh, imagine what he wouldn't have experienced had he not just taken that little risk. And, and, and also in his mind, he's probably like, she could say no. She could, she could slam the ice cream. Like, what's the worst case scenario here? He loses his two bucks on an ice cream or whatever. And she says no. But, the, you know, that's painful. That kind of thing hurts when you get knocked down like that. And, and you know, maybe that was his 10th ice cream, right? You gotta be okay. I was gonna say, okay if if she said no, yeah, I think I think he was gonna buy it for the woman that was sitting beside her on that bench. So yeah, I think you're right. So getting comfortable with with that rejection, and that was one thing I sure learned in sales. It is to a certain extent a numbers game. You gotta make those calls, and you gotta be okay with people saying no, or you know you need, and you've got to up your game. But if you don't do that, if you don't take those risks, then nothing cool happens, and you and and it tends to be kind of limiting. You're like, well. That hurt last time. And if you've done it 10 times, it hurt. Yeah, it still hurts. But, you know, you're like, the next one's going to hit and, and you, you can stand up again. So it ties into resiliency. And I, I, that's an awesome story, by the way. And I'm, sounds like you had a good relationship. And that's, that's a cool thing, too. Yeah. You know, he just passed away a year ago. So it was, it was top of mind. Uh, well, you're taking groups out into low, what I would call low knowledge environments all the time and or dealing with uncertainty however you want to phrase it what are some things that you have learned over the years work really well when taking a group into a low knowledge environment to make sure that you come out safely because i think this is there's a very powerful takeaway at least here for teams and organizations that might be tuning in I mean, there's a lot of ways to deal with those low knowledge environments and they loop back to a few key ideas for me the first of all First of all, is to be humble enough to say, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> That's the first thing is to go, this is not my area of competency. If somebody calls me up and says, hey, I want to climb a frozen waterfall and you're going to guide me, that's what I do. But if they're like, hey, I want to go and do a TV commercial on icebergs, I know a lot about ice, but I don't know very much about the ocean. And I need to be humble enough to say, you know what, I don't know a lot about that, but I can gather the resources together to go into that environment. And if I, but if I were just all positive power, positive thinking, I'd be like, yeah, dude, no problem. We'll work this out. You know? So the, the first thing is to be, is to be humble um, and to know yourself in the Shakespearean quote well enough to, to recognize that and to not just run on bravado to be like, all right, we're going to have to actually figure this out and then go slowly. If it's an area that I'm an expert in and I've spent a lot of time developing you know, skill in, then I can move a little bit faster. But when I'm almost all the places I go into, I don't know what's going to happen there. I don't know what the hazards are going to be. So I have to slow down. I have to do good research. I have to do really good planning. I have to think about all the possibilities. And then I have to 
call people up if, if it's a glaciology project and find out the best possible information, but huge amounts of information gathering and humility. And this can get intellectual really fast, but if there's an outcome that I want, I want to take you know, 50 people into the Arctic and make a, a film in the Arctic. It's a place I've never been. Um, yeah. the, the intellectual model I use for that is internal understanding times external understanding equals outcome. So how well do I know myself? How accurate is that knowledge about what I can do, what I can't do, where I'm good, where I'm not? And then the environment that I'm going into, everything from the people that I'm going to take how well do I know their competencies? How well do they know them? How who am I going to take? You know, to I don't know anything about Baffin Island polar bears. I, I know they have a front and a back end, but beyond that, I'm not a polar bear expert. I'm going to need somebody with polar bear expertise to operate in that environment. And again, I'm trying to make it. Um, I'm trying to improve my external understanding continually and improve my internal understanding. And if one of those is a zero and the other one is a ten, it's still a zero. And where I want to be in that equation of internal times external is like in the 90s. And I'll actually okay. do this numerically. I'll be like, yeah. if, you know, I really understand this environment and I under understand myself in that environment and I've got the skills and competencies to operate there, that's like an eight or a nine. And then if I'm going someplace and I don't understand it or I'm you know going to gamble a million dollars of somebody else's money, which I'm sure in your world sometimes isn't that much, but in mine, that's still a lot of money. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to lose that. And I'm only a two or a three in there. I need to get that to like an eight or a nine before I'll go into there. And and not I'm not just hoping for the best. I'm like, I'm going to sit down and think lots of negative thoughts and I'm going to gather expertise. Then when I go in there, I've got a much better shot at getting an outcome that I, I want. I love the formula, but it still seems a little subjective. So how do you know, yeah. how do you know with confidence that, that you've gotten it to the threshold where you're ready to go? Depends on the project. And, and again, on the consequences. One thing I've learned in life is that I'm much better at judging consequences than probability. So if the consequence is somebody dies or I lose every bit of capital that I have in my life, I'm going to have to set the bar a lot higher, or I'm going to have to find people with competencies that are, that are much higher than my own to go into that environment. But like your ice cream story, he gambled two bucks on an ice cream. He didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And he got a 25 year awesome relationship out of it. I'm willing to go with a low number on that one. I'm willing to risk $2, but Again, I don't know what the other person's going to do in that situation. So that's maybe a zero, but I'm willing to risk that. But if it's like yeah. all of my money or somebody else's life on my team, because I'm going into very hazardous places, then I'm going to slow it down a lot until I've gained that knowledge. And what I value in the people that I go into these environments with is not their um, sort of belief in themselves. What I value is people who are realistic about what they can do, what they can't do, and positive about working together. I'll take somebody who has a really um, clear level of self-knowledge and clear level about their competency set way before I'll take somebody who's hyper-confident. I, I recognize hyper-confidence now is often the, the immediate predecessor to really bad things happening. 
and somebody's like, this is no problem. I got this. That person scares me. Person is like, hey, I think this is reasonable. Here's my, here's my spreadsheet and my safety plan. And here's what I'm going to do when these things go wrong, but it still could go bad. I'm like, all right, this is somebody I could work with. And, and, and this person is recognizing that it's not just rah, 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 go. Yeah. Have you ever got yourself into an experience or an expedition or adventure where you, you thought you had done the work and you rated it really, really highly and then you got into it. So now you're in the experience and you're recognizing quickly that it wasn't as highly rated as you thought. And now you're in a much riskier situation than you anticipated. What you just said is super important. And it, just stepping back one second and then I'll, I'll tell you a story because I've gotten this wrong yeah. several times. But my main job in life is to listen to the world because the world is right. And I wanna parse out what the factual information is in that environment as fast as possible. What, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's you know investing or planning a trip somewhere, I want to look for change. And my expectation is that there will be change. It's not that things are gonna be the same as they were or that I've been told that they are. When I go into a new environment, I'm on the lookout for things that are different because that's going to enable me to make decisions. I'm not like, all right, we have the team for March. I'm like, what's different here? I've been told that, you know, icebergs are super stable. They're not. These things roll over all the time. And you know what? There's 50 polar bears in this island that there aren't supposed to be polar bears on. You know, I can't, I could say, well, we'll just keep going forward team. But what I'm likely to do in that environment is go, hey, let's step back. You know, the world is giving us a message here. We need to listen to that and reevaluate and come up with a better plan. We're going to go in groups of three on this island and we're going to have somebody who's armed with us. You know, we're going to develop a new plan. We're going to adapt. And that is what I value as I get older more and more and more is people who will see the environment clearly and adapt to it. That, that's what I'm really interested in. So yeah, I've been on a lot of trips. None of my trips ever go according to plan. None of my business ideas have ever gone according to plan either. I thought I'd start an app and it would take like three days and I'd spend five grand on some app developer. No, that did not go that way. Not at all. But, you know, you adapt and you figure out what actually is. And then you go for it. And, you know, I scrap a lot of things. When they don't work out, I'm willing to lose $2 on an ice cream cone, but I'm not willing to kill somebody on one of my teams. So I have pulled back from trips. Yeah, it it's making me think a little bit about the black swan theory. And then we, you know, we do all of this, yeah. we, you know, we do all this contingency planning and risk mitigation planning. But the problem with that is you can't see the unforeseeable. And I, and I wonder, Will, in, in your experiences, how does a person get a little bit better at recognizing the unknown unknowns? Yeah, I love the, un that, that Donald Rumsfeld quote. When I first heard that, I thought, you know, there's the things we know we don't know, the things we know we don't know, and then there's the things we don't know that we don't know. And I was like, Donald Rumsfeld, that, that made no sense. And again, the older I get, the more I'm like, that's brilliant. So it is the unknown unknowns. But you can either have the attitude when you go into a situation that you do know a great deal about it, and you're an expert, and so it's all going to be fine. But when you're in a really high consequence environment, whether it's monetary or, in my case, often people's lives, I go in there with the idea that I've done my preparation, I've done my planning, I've really researched data, and, and I know my internal times external, I feel pretty good about that number. 
But when I go in there, I'm expecting it to change. I think there are going to be unknown unknowns. And the more you work in this way, where you're trying to do really cool things, but survive them and, and come out, the better you get at recognizing them early. And that's the most important thing is to, again, if you think you're the center of the universe, who cares what the rest of the universe is doing? But if you're like, the universe is the most important thing, and my job is to figure it out, then you can do cool things and survive. Uh, there's, there's a lot coming up for me here that I would call priming. It sounds like you yeah. have, over the years, you have done a masterful job of knowing exactly what kind of a mindset you have to be in going into some kind of an adventure or, uh, or experience so that um, your mind is gonna be attuned to the things that it needs to see and hopefully that will be enough to pick up the most dangerous situations. Or, or I mean, imagine, let's talk about it the other way though, Will. This must open you up to magical experiences that weren't part of the master plan. So it's not just risk, but you must encounter a whole bunch of upside with this mindset too. Well, you, yeah, you see things and you're like, wouldn't it be cool if? Um, one thing you just said though, I think is really important. And we just talked about me but I'm going in there all the time and whatever I'm doing, you know, whether it's a business thing or a, or a trip of mine, I'm going in there with a team and I'm often not that good at seeing the unknown unknown coming. But what I try to do is set up the environment in my teams so that anybody on that team feels really good about saying, Hey, Will, have you thought about this? And, and often I haven't. So I start every safety briefing or every, you know, uh, film trip planning project by saying, hey, I want to know if something looks off to you, I really want to know about it. I don't care if you're here to make sandwiches. You know, if something's weird, please bring it up. And this has saved my life literally a couple of times. When I, when I climbed Niagara Falls, we had the safety meeting, there's 200 people there. And I was like, hey, these are the things I'm, I'm worried about. If something looks weird to you, please speak up. And, you know, there's everybody there from really hard-ass New York State cops. You know, it's just a, it's a, to squirrels, ADD film people that I'm managing as well. But I want them all to know that we're lifeguarding each other in this environment. This is really important. And if anything seems odd in any of those environments, let's speak up. So I'm climbing up and down Niagara Falls, and this voice comes over the radio. It's like, hey. Is there supposed to be a big hank of rope hanging below use? Well, well, no, there's not. And then one of those New York State cops saw that and brought it up. So it's not just the leader that needs to be tuned into things. It's everybody on the team. And then you get a much bigger web. And to your point about the positive, the same thing happens. I get emails all the time from people like, hey, we have this thing here in our country. And are you interested in maybe coming and doing something with it? And I'm like, I sure am. Or I read about something like, you know, it was something completely weird. I, I, one of my last trips, I read an article in the Globe and Mail about this, this really interesting person who wanted to do geologic research in the middle of a cliff and nobody would go there. And I was like, that sounds interesting. I'll, I will go there and do that with you. So yeah, being attuned to things being both different and, and possibly really interesting. And, and going and seizing those opportunities as well. Yeah, and Will, you just touched on something that was the primary reason that I first became just totally enamored and curious about your work and who you are as a human being. 
And it's, it's the concept of psychological safety. And, and, and this is something that's paramount for anybody that's part of a team because it's one of the most predictive indicators of a high-performing, successful team. We've had Amy Edmondson on the program before from Harvard, who's you know, the certified expert in psychological safety. And there was a quote that I actually use of yours in a lot of presentations that I give, which is basically, hey, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but you will see things that I do not see. And you must speak up because if you don't speak up, you're kind of putting the whole group in, in danger. And I just, I, and I know I'm paraphrasing it. It's a remarkable quote. And I want to dig into this a little bit on, on at least two different levels. Now, number one is it's really easy to, to say that message, even though lots of people don't. So once you deliver these messages and you kind of prime the group for what I would call psychological safety and speaking up, what do you do with those teams if you're not seeing or hearing what you need to that demonstrates that they're going to tell you something when they see it? As leaders, whether in business or whatever we're doing, we're the leader, right? We're the person who's supposed to know what's going on. And if we yeah. put off that aura, big or small, somebody says something to us now it can be inconsequential wrong annoying as hell but how we need to deal with that is to look with the eye and say hey what what are you thinking here how does that work because the rest of the team is watching you and bluntly if you aren't open to that they're going to figure that out really fast they're people are good at figuring the bullshit detector will go off and they're like that guy doesn't care about us he doesn't those those were words but if you're like I'm not tracking what you're saying here. What are you thinking? And then you have a conversation about it. That's not necessarily just about that person. That's about the whole team watching you do that. And then if you're also up there and you're an error, if, if your attitude, we've all worked for people who are like, I have this under control. There will be no dissent. Hit your numbers and shut up. We've all worked for people like I work for somebody like that. Nobody wants to say anything. Even if it was a great opportunity, nobody would say anything because that guy's a dick. You're not going to do anything. So what I try to do in my environments, whether it's five people or 200, I want people to look at me and say, hey, that's somebody I can go and talk to. They will listen to me. And whether it's a, a even if I'm totally wrong, they'll find my wrongness interesting. And I and I do. If somebody comes up and they what they're saying is patently wrong, that's fine. We can have a quick conversation about it. And I'll be like, hey, thanks for bringing that up. And And then it rolls forward. But yeah, if you put off that energy of, you know, I know what I'm doing and don't tell me what I'm doing, then you're the Korean airline pilots with the hierarchical flight deck where the navigator knows that the plane is flagged toward a mountain and the pilot's like, I am the pilot, shut up. And the, and the plane literally hit the mountain. This is Malcolm Gladwell in, in one of his books. I, I love that story because I don't want to be that pilot. I want to be the pilot that says to the navigator, and why do you think there's a mountain in our way? And the, and the navigator says, well, I've got it on my chart. And I could see it on the radar. I'll be like, thank you very much. <laughs> you are the man of the day. I totally appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I want I want him to help me change the course every day. Well, and you've just given any leader that's tuning into this conversation some very powerful and practical advice. And it's it's. I don't think it's occurred to me as much as you just drove it home this point. It's not just about how we respond directly to that one person, but in great cultures, or any culture for that matter, it's shaped by the signals that we are sending to each other every single day. And so when somebody is just observing how we respond, there is a signal for what you really believe as a leader. And so that, that is, um, that's really important to drive that message home. Now, the other part of this then, Will, 
Do you think you're naturally wired to receive feedback that way, or have you had to work on yourself to get where you are, where you're at? I've had to work on myself a lot, and I'm still working on myself, and I still blow it all the time. And what I've learned is that when I do that, I just need to own it and say, hey, that didn't work out the way I thought it was. I made a mistake there. And this is what I've learned from it. I'm going to go forward. You know, there's there's all these names, and I, I do have probably fairly classical ADD. I'm prone to impulsively poor decisions. So one of the tools that I use in my safety meeting is I'll stand up there and say, hey, I'm fully ADD. I'm a squirrel and I'm working with all of you and I'm going to screw this up. And I'd really appreciate when I do that, if one of you would please speak up or if there's something cool, can you tell me about it? Can you say, hey, there's a cool thing we could go do that would be way better. I want to hear about that. But yeah, you got to own it and you, you do have to help people to see you as not this castle over on the side, but it's like, you're, you're part of the ship. And, you know, one of the things when I was, I learned that early in my career in, in business, when I was running magazines and, and research groups, it was, I would show up in the office. And if there's one of my salespeople that was having a hard time, I'd be like, let's hit a call together. Let's go out and do that. Let's, and, and by doing that, they would also say, hey, we've got this opportunity and they know that I have them. And, you know, I think that's just really important on any team is it, as the leader, you get in there and do whatever is required because then everybody else on your team will do the same thing. You know, if we're at the airport and I've got a new film crew, I've never worked with these guys together, right? I got six guys from England I've never met and they got a bunch of Pelican cases. We do our introductions and I make damn sure the first thing I do is pick up those Pelican cases and march them out the door. You have to do that because they see that and they're like, oh, he's not a stuck up pain in the ass presenter. He's going to work for us and we're going to work for him. And I want, you know, if I see somebody in my team that's not doing that, I'm like, hey, we could use a hand right now. And if, if they're like, well, that's not my job, I'm not going to take them apart publicly, but we're going to have a conversation later and say, hey, it's not my job to carry your shit, but I'm going to do it. And if you can help the rest of the team, it's going to move us all forward. And the goal here is to do the best job we can. And so let's, can we get on that program? I'm not going to do it publicly. That's a rule. Very rarely does it serve anybody well to, to take them apart. Yeah, that whole That's, concept of leading by example will. No, I, 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 can see, I, can, I can see the power of that, uh, having that, having that crucial conversation in private and leading by example. I mean, there's, there's a couple other things that you're doing in there, I think, at least a couple of other things. And you're, it sounds like you're doing a wonderful job of stage setting. And then, and then you're also showing up as a fallible leader. And I think that's what, that's what we've learned in recent years is the type of leaders that people admire the most are fallible. They're not the ones that have all the answers. They, they're confident, they have yeah. a plan, but there's a lot of humility uh, in, in there. What is the motivator for you to show up that way? Because there must be something that's pulling you towards, hey, I wanna be humble, I wanna be real, I wanna show up as a, uh, as, a, as a person that makes mistakes despite all my credentials and past experiences. What are some of those things that compel you to show up that way? I think that's a good question. You've, you've obviously asked questions like this a lot. I think that's great. I love that question because um, there's, there's two answers to that. First of all, I hate losing. Losing sucks. And if I show up as an autocratic ass, I'm going to lose. That's guaranteed, right? For sure. <laughs> you know, that's, if, I, 
that's not going to bring out the best of me. It's not going to bring out the best of my team. You know, we're going to go into environments in, in Thailand. I'm going to make cultural errors and nobody's going to tell me that because I'm that guy who doesn't want to know anything. And we're going to get a poor result. So some of it is long term. Like it's actual results driven. It's I, I, I really, really want to understand every situation I'm in. And, and I want to function as well as I can. And if I'm being, you know, an autocratic ass, it's not going to go well. So some of it is not just peace and love and kumbaya. It's about results. I've learned that when I, when I am a human and operate well with other humans, we get better things done together. And that's so cool. I love that. So some of it's straight up results. It, it works better. But the other thing is also it feels better. If I'm up there and I'm like, I never make mistakes and then I make mis a mistake, you know, it's it's like the emperor with no clothes. And the little kid is like, you're not wearing any clothes, dude. <laughs> you know, I want people to say before I go out the door, do you want to put some clothes on today? And and it feels better. It's like, you know, and I think what you just said is really important about leaders. It's it's not the, the auto, oh, this is not always true. I mean, there have been some, there are exceptions to this, but for me personally, I, I enjoy operating on a team where people look out for each other and have a common goal. And then we're more resilient. We're getting beat down and things aren't going our way. And, and you know, we can circle up and, and talk about it and be like, all right, you know, you're going to try this. I'm going to try this. And yeah, it was my call that got us here. And you don't have to be perfect, which is quite a lot easier in life. You just have to be willing to try. Yeah, and, and I think that that is a, it's, that's poignant because you could sit back and say, okay, he shows up, he's very vulnerable, he's humble, he creates these safe environments. But if that's overdone, that's probably what we call the zone of comfort or the zone of apathy in some ways. Yeah. And I just, I think it's really important that you drove home the point that this is also about high expectations. This is also about winning, right? This is also being like yeah. the best in the world at something. So you, you have got... Yeah. You've got a, I'm going to put words in your mouth a little bit, but it sounds like an insatiable drive to excel, but you want to do it with other people and, and, and you want everybody to feel like they've contributed to it. But it's not one or the other, it's both. And, and I think this is where a lot of organizations go wrong is they almost think that they have to choose. And, and that, is not, that is not at all the message here. You can win and you can have very psychologically safe and inclusive environments. And I think that's good news for everybody. Yeah, and, and and realizing it's an actual benefit. Like I'm not interested in safe and, and psychologically um, comfortable environments because everybody feels better. I'm interested in them because they get better results. Like I don't want everybody to feel happy and comfortable just because it feels nice to be happy and comfortable. It's like, I want us to like do well. We're doing high consequence, intense things here, whether it's you know, whatever we're doing. So I, I want it to go well. I think yeah. one other thing, just to riff on what you said for a second, I'm not really interested in like beating other people that that is sort of satisfying some of the time, but what I'm interested in more than that is being better. Like I've won a lot of competitions in a lot of different sports. Okay. That's I'm trying not to brag, but that's, I have done that. I have that record and that's nice, but I never rolled into any of those competitions thinking I was going to beat anybody. Or I don't play psychological games at competitions. I am there to do the best I can. And the, the rest is details. I can't control other people's performance. I can't control their, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and game them. It's like I am there to do my best. And on that day, 
if it's good enough, that'll put me on top of the podium. But if I'm trying to like play games with people, that's not going to be the best for anybody. And if I'm trying to beat people, just to beat them, that feels good a little bit. But long-term, you don't really get to be better. I'm not interested in winning a local competition. I want to be the best in the world that I can be. And that's a much deeper goal, I think, than just just winning an individual thing. It's like, are you getting better? Because that is really cool. I think it's difficult long-term to, to achieve a state of, of lasting fulfillment if you're competing with other people, because somebody will always be better, younger, faster, stronger, more courageous, whatever it might be, have better access to resources. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the be better concept as well. And I, the only person I'm okay yeah. competing with in the long haul is myself. And, and I think if we can get to that place, we'd all be better for it. Now, I'm also imagining, I mean, I can appreciate how you lay out the risks in advance of going on some, some uh, kind of adventure. And everybody that's in your group uh, knows what they are, and so inevitably you get to that valley, or you, you know, and then you climb up the the cliffs, and you get to this place where they know they're going to be staring over this cliff, and they've got this fear of heights, and they freeze. How do you help people overcome fear in the moment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots, there's lots of different types of fear, and people often look at what I do, and I'm hanging thousands of feet off the ground. Like you must have no fear. And, and no, I've got a lot of fear. I've got a lot of anxiety and stressed out. I don't like that. I did that the other day and I did not enjoy it, but I was like, okay, how do I make this work? And so again, if you try to tell people to overcome their fear and I, you know, I take special forces people out. These are like burly guys. They're, you know, like 200 pounds. They're like, they're go, man. They are go. And they'll be on the side of a mountain and they'll freeze because it's terrifying. And they'll be like, I'm going to, you know, I can't move. And they're really humiliated because for them, that's like a major failure. And if I told them, you know, soldier, get your shit together, move. They're just going to hang on tighter. And what I've got to do is walk up to them and say, hey, man, what's going on? And they'll be like, I'm terrified. And they're like, all right, what are you terrified of? Well, I'm going to fall down the mountain. I'm like, fair enough. If you didn't have a rope on, that'd be a pretty good reality. Can you lift one hand up? And the guy's like, no. I'll be like, all right, how about one finger? All right. And then they lift one finger up and I'm like, all right, I'm going to take the rope really tight now on you. And, and I, I want you just, if you can, just stand up a little bit. And they stand up a little bit and they're like, start to figure out their imbalance and the rope's tight and they're not going to die. But our fears aren't rational. They're not going to be often overcome with these like strictly rational argue, arguments. What they're really doing is going, all right, this person's watching out for me and they're showing me how this stuff works. And we're in this together. And next thing you know, they're climbing again. But if I yell at them or tell them that their fear is irrational, fear doesn't listen to that kind of stuff. Fear is like, you know, to give a graphic gesture, <laughs> fear is just going to laugh at you. It's, it's not an intellectual thing. It's brainstem level. So again, you don't ignore it. You engage with it and, and, and have them look under the bed a bit and just do what they can that's comfortable. And then pretty soon they're like, they're climbing. And I'm actually not worried. The, the, the person who scares me is not the person who freezes on the side of the cliff. That's pretty normal. Like, you should be scared. You're on the side of a cliff. It's scary. <laughs> it's the person who's running around on the edge of the cliff and doesn't care. That person is a menace to me and to themselves and to the whole team. That person, I'm like, you know, I, I very rarely had to do this. Usually I can work with people, but there are there are very, very rarely some people that have just said, hey, this is you're, you're, you're going to kill me or kill somebody here. And, you know, 
let's have you do something that doesn't put you in these environments. But it's very rare. Most people can sort it out. And so, Will, that's that's an example of you coaching somebody through their fear, and and I think that's got a lot of a lot of applications. You reminded me of a situation I got myself in last summer. I was alone on Heart Mountain, and and uh, I got a little bit out of my comfort zone and stuck on a bit of a rock wall. And, and looking back on it, it's it's I laugh, but I, I was scared and I was kind of paralyzed for a moment. And I wondered if there were some better strategies that that I could have used myself. But if someone is alone or they have to sort of coach themselves through their fear, have you seen some things that maybe would be a good to have in your toolkit? I think first is to is to observe that you are actually afraid. A lot of again, a lot of fear. The worst part of fear is denying it. The worst, you know, whether it's alcoholism or or whatever it is, if you just say, I don't have a problem. I, you know, this is, I'm just going to stay here paralyzed on the side of this mountain as perhaps you were on hard mountain. Then it doesn't work out. But if you're like, all right, I got a problem here. I, my mind is totally overloading me. There's adrenaline all through my body. And, and you're like, okay, you know, just observe that and be like, all right, this is what's going on. You know, and I, and I do this nightly sometimes. I can't sleep. Well, why can't I sleep? I'm worried about this project I pitched and I haven't heard back. And I break it all down. And I'm like, okay, what parts of that do I have any control over? Is it going to help me to worry right now? Or, or am I just worrying about it because I haven't thought through what I'm going to do if it fails? Like, well, if the pitch doesn't come back, I'll make another one. And, and spending time with that situation, observing it. And then you also have to do this thing. It's a psychological sports psychology thing, but to permit it, be like, no shit, I'm actually scared. I am anxious. I'm not just going to keep ignoring that. And then you start working with it. And, and so then usually once you've done those things, you're like, okay, this is actually serious. I do need to, should I stay here and wait for a rescue? Because somebody will eventually call, the helicopter will come, or can I move one foot? Or are my feet actually pretty good? And I'm, you get bored. After a while, you get bored of being afraid, right? But if you're just like, I'm going to overcome this fear, I guarantee it's going to get worse. But if you're like, all right, you know, I'm okay. And then you can act. So that cycle of, you know, a very interesting guy named John Coleman that I've worked with a bit. He had, he teaches this, but it's observe, permit, accept, and act. And that's the that's the loop that when I find myself in those hang anxiety situations, you know, I'm going to go talk to a business group and they're all really smart. And I'm a skid from Cam Ward. I'm telling myself all this negative shit. It's like, okay, hang on. You have done this before. Most people that you talk to, you have a good time with. Okay, you know, maybe it won't be so bad. A worst case scenario, I won't get another gig. I'll have to go back and sell magazine subscriptions or whatever. I could do this and I go out and do it. But long answer, does that, is that resonate? Yeah, I know what's good. And I, and, I, and I think all of that, I was playing through my own experience. And I think in some ways without knowing it, I walked through a bunch of those things, sort of acknowledging it and facing it and then figuring out what, what could I do? How long could I just stay yes. there? Oh, it was a quiet day on the trail. I actually got lucky. Eventually, a, a mountain guide, a part-time mountain guide from uh, from Squamish, wandered up the trail as I was sitting there dejected after I got myself off the rock wall, and he showed me where I could go instead, and he coached me up, and the place that I thought was an, an impassable spot, for me at least, uh, was very, very easy with the right help. And so... It also makes me have a lot more uh, put, place a lot more value on uh, on what you do and, and how you help uh, how you help people. <laughs> and you, but you also asked that guy, right? You took a risk. You could because you're like, oh, I got over there. This didn't work out. Like, do you know where? And, but you asked him, do you know where the trail is? 
and you're a man asking for directions is difficult, right? And you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but we want to do things our own way. But oftentimes when you ask somebody, you know, they'll give you that help. And then he also looks at you and goes, well, this person is, is asking for help. They're not a liability. Yeah. And then you do something well, I, cool and you got to go up. Well, the other thing awesome. that I, the other thing you're reminding me of is it's, it's, I, I learned it is the hard way is that it's a lot easier to be humble and ask for help when you're out of water and you only have half a granola bar left. So I was, uh, I was on my last resources. <laughs> it was a brutally hot day in, uh, in early August and I, I would have taken any help I could have got well. So I don't want to give myself awesome. too much. I don't want to give myself too much credit for, for uh, how I showed up. I want to come back to Niagara Falls. So you were the you were the first person to successfully climb a frozen Niagara Falls, and and this took you years of preparation. But not only that, it sounds like it took years of convincing state officials because you did it on the American side to let you do it. And you were quoted as saying that the positive outcomes of this climb were worth the risk. And looking back, I'm like, well, I, I have no idea what those positive outcomes were. What, what, were the, what were you hoping to do or accomplish as a result of successfully doing that? Well, I thought climbing, I'm, I'm a frozen waterfall. I'm an icicle climber, right? Like I'm a pro icicle climber. And Niagara Falls is probably the coolest waterfall in the world. And very occasionally it freezes enough on the edges that you might be able to climb it. And so for me, this is, this is the best thing ever. Like, obviously you should go and climb Niagara Falls. This is, this is the best idea ever. And, you know, many people are probably going, you're an idiot. And that's, that's fair, but I'm different. I, I have accepted that. But for me, this is the coolest thing ever. And so I, I call up the park official and I'm like, hey, you know, Mr. Superintendent, I'd really, I'd really like to climb Niagara Falls. And can I have a permit to do that next winter? And, and his response was no. And if I see you here, I'm, I'm, you're going to get arrested. Because there's a lot of people who go to Niagara Falls and try to do different stunts. They have to deal with a lot of chaos there that's sometimes not very pleasant. It's not all honeymoons and happiness at Niagara Falls. People do weird stuff there. And he didn't want to have any part of that. Plus, in winter in Niagara Falls, it is kind of icy. And they, they organize things. We didn't want people to go over the railings. And, you know, he had a lot of concerns about it. So he said no, which is, again, what usually happens. So went through a long, many, many layers of government until I'm speaking with the, the head of the New York, basically the governor of New York. <laughs> he had the same thing. Like, you know, if you have an accident there, we can't sell hotel rooms in Niagara Falls in winter right now. And if you have an accident, nobody will ever go there. They'll think it's going to happen to them too. You know, it's dead there in the winter. Nobody wants to go there. They think it's ugly. You know, it's cold. It's like nobody wants to come here in winter, you know, and, and so that obviously it's just nothing but risk with you. And it was back to that little bike shop story at the beginning. It's like, well, what do you want to do? He's like, well, I'd like to sell some hotel rooms in Niagara Falls in the winter. I'd like visitors to come here. That's what he wanted to have happen. And it was, again, listening to what he wanted and, and figuring out how to make it with her, make it work for him. Not just for me. I want to climb Niagara Falls. Obviously the coolest thing ever. He can't sell hotel rooms if there's an accident, it all goes down. But the question I finally asked was, hey, if I could do this safely, and I'd love to walk you through some of the planning that I've done, do you think we'd get some media attention? And if we did, do you think it would bring some visitors to Niagara Falls in the winter? And you could see his mind churning. And, he, and he's like, ah, that's the upside for me. And that was, again, just going back to that bike shop order that taught me how, a little bit about sales. And then 11 trips or something later to, to New York State, I'd gone through every level of government. 
and listened to their problems and adapted to their worlds and understood them and given them what they needed. And the, the odd thing is, you know, you're, a couple of years later, I got this call. It's like, hey, could you come back to Niagara Falls? We want to give you the keys to the city. And what they got out of it was 300 and some global TV interviews that boosted bookings and winter tourism in Niagara Falls dramatically. And we all won and did something really cool. And that's, again, you know, that's sales one-on-one. But without that time, walking into bike shops to learn what people wanted and giving it to them and building a relationship, it wouldn't work. Well, that is a mess. Yeah, that's, that's a masterclass on building win-win relationships. I love, I, and I love how you tied that all together. So we talked about, you say like this, I was going to ask you earlier too, how has sales helped you in your life? And there you go. You just brought it all full uh, circle. Will, Hey, I want to, I want to ask you something I, that I think is on the more serious side of it. Uh, and just as recently as two weeks ago, you had a very thought provoking Instagram post that uh, you were down just, uh, I think, just west of Banff on the Stanley Headwall between Banff and Lake Louise. And uh, you chose to avoid that area. And a day later, there was a fairly, I would say, fairly large uh, avalanche. And a lot of people would, using the value of hindsight, would sort of applaud their decision making. But you ended up sort of questioning if, if that's all it was, was just the value of hindsight or just dumb luck and you don't deserve any credit for that planning at all. And, but where I'm going with this more specifically is you've made a career out of making the impossible possible. And that means that confronting your own mortality on several occasions, probably at least a year, if not a month. What has that done for your relationship with risk, mortality, your own mortality and, and your relationship with death? Like, what is that like? And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, there's so many different things in what you just said. <laughs> and I don't have the, I have sort of the current answer to that, but it's changed a lot over the years, both in terms of death and, and risk taking. And yeah, I mean, so probably trying to break that down into a couple of different components, if that's okay to start with. Um, the, well, the, yes. I mean, the, the first thing is I used to be really worried about sharp risks. And I think all of us are really good at worrying about sharp risks. We're driving along the highway and the car swerves toward us. We know what to do. We get out of the way. It's really simple. And we're like, wow, we made the right decision. We saved our lives. But then we go drive down the same road the next day and it's icy again. And, and uh, we often don't think about that. And inevitably, we are going to have outcomes that are serious if we do things that are high consequence, be it driving a car or climbing mountains or whatever. And you have enough of those and you start to question whether you're going to live forever. And the answer is no. And then you start to question and think about maybe what are the things that are actually going to kill me? And increasingly, what I see in life for most people is it's the dull risks and the not taking risks that are more of a problem than the sharp risks. So what I mean by that is, you know, you and I had a, had a beer together one night. It was wonderful. We quit after one or two beers. But if we did that every, every day and every hour, that would be a cumulative dull risk. And I, you know, I used to smoke a little bit when I was younger. That didn't kill me. Cigarettes aren't that bad. But it's that cumulative dull risk of cigarette after cigarette after cigarette. You know, I do a lot of safety speaking. So I'm speaking to groups of people that work in you know, high hazard, high consequence environments. But then they go home and get hammered and smoke a pack of cigarettes. And they're very safe on the job but it's those dull risks that add up over time. And so I'm much more concerned about those. You know, my, I'm, I'm 55. 
My grandfather unfortunately died at 55 of heart disease from smoking mainly. And no one cigarette killed him, but that dull risk over time added up. So I'm much more worried about those cumulative risks now than when I was younger. There will be that car coming over the line. And how am I gonna manage that? Do I wanna be in a vehicle that has good safety features, drive a bit slower? That's a cumulative risk. The sharp risk is easy to deal with. I know what to do with. But planning through that is more important. Then also, I'm, I'm, I'm living at bonus years right now. My grandfather was a great guy, but every day it's like, how do I also want to live? I could do nothing, you know, and, and I've, I've got some degree of financial security now, but I could do nothing, but that isn't very interesting. That's not much joyous. That's not much joy in life. That doesn't light me up. It doesn't blow my hair back, you know, so I'm, I'm going to do something different. I'm actually working on a couple different business things right now, and I'm excited about those because that will keep me from going into that depressed, you know, and I get really depressed if I don't have interesting things going on. And I, I literally get depressed. I'm like, ah, I've done nothing meaningful and I will never do anything meaningful again. It's like, okay, let's take a risk here and get things going again, either in business or whatever. So sharp risk versus dull risk and making sure we're not falling into that dull risk trap that leads to the end of your business in a depressed state and you're not psyched to get up in the morning and go kick ass. That's part of it. And then also part of it is to maybe realize we don't have all that much control. We favor the outcomes we want. We work hard for them. But some of your, some of the people who watch this, they might really enjoy a book by Annie Duke uh, called Thinking in Bets. She's a pro poker player. Have you read this book or looked at any of her stuff? Yeah, we've had her on the program twice. I love her. Really? I love her. She's so awesome. I've never met her. If I want to meet her. If you can hook me up with an intro, I'll, uh, I'll, I'd love that. Anyhow, love her stuff. And, uh, and you know, we, we, we make these bets and we, we try to make things favor the outcomes we want, but sometimes it's not going to go our way. And if you really do accept that, then you realize that like a certain amount of slap down is, is important. It gets you to the places where you're winning. You got to get, if you're like 80% certain that a business idea will work and you're right, 20% of the time you're going to get your teeth kicked in, but you got to get back up and go forward. And so that's that's really important. That's been a, I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that those beatdowns are somewhat inevitable, but I'm going to get back up and, and go after it. And then also life is is uncertain. I could have gone into the Stanley Headwall, like you mentioned that day, and and gotten hit by an avalanche. And in hindsight, everybody's like, what was he thinking? Obviously, it was windy. But we do make errors. And I think that's part of our earlier conversation is I do expect myself and others to make errors. We're not perfect. And to recognize that and try to build cultures, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to change my outdoor culture right now to be more comfortable with poor outcomes. And by doing that, get better outcomes, not expect perfection, not expect things to always be perfect. And that's why I put that post up. You know, I've, I have a little bit of a platform and I want people to go, wow, he looked at that and turned around the day before, but it wasn't a sure thing. He had to think about it. And I wondered about it. Did I do the right thing? And the next day I got the sign that I did the right thing in, in the form of that avalanche, but often you don't, but you still have to do the right thing. So a lot of answers to, there's so many things in what you asked that I could go on forever about it, but I just love that you asked it. Thank you for reading that. Yeah. Will that you, answer? Well, that's a great answer. I mean, and, and any answer you provide, that's, I, I just want your answer. So that's all that matters. And, and um, eloquent as always. 
you've changed my perception of risk. And I find myself, as you were sharing that story, coming back to, you could have played it safe and stayed in the publishing job and not quit and gone on to the X Games. But had you done that, you might have lost your job anyways when the company was sold six months later. I think one of the, one of the big takeaways for me in this conversation is to err on the side of choosing the risks that are going to bring you joy. Take the risks that are going to lead to some uncertainty that are going to cause you to have to rise to the occasion instead of playing it safe. Because even when you play it safe, there's always risks that are lurking. Life is just one big ball of luck and uncertainty in certain, uh, in certain cases. So I think that, that you've really, if not reminded people, you're teaching people through this conversation and just how you live your life. Um, so I want to thank you for everything you shared with us today. This has been an incredible conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for doing what you do. I've learned a lot speaking with you. And, and one thing I would say, too, that's interesting, the more I've done in the business world, both when I was younger and now, the more I've learned. A lot of what I've done in my safety speaking world is learn about how those companies deal with safety. And I'm taking that back into the outdoor world. So you go into these things thinking you're going to give something, but almost always I get more back. And that's a risk to go in and do that. And so that's why I take it. Like I've learned so much from that world that I'm applying in my outdoor world. I don't know. Interesting things with interesting people that res- do, you know, do cool things with interesting people. It's, that's what I really love. Well, that's a, that, that, well, thanks, Will. That, that's a life well lived, and I, I've, I've admired you for a long time. It has been such a thrill for me to get a chance to spend some time with you over the last several months. So thank you for making that time and just being so gracious and, and so generous, not with your, just your time, but just with your thoughts and your ideas and your insights. You're the real deal. Um, you're, you're as an authentic person as I've met. Where can people track you down, Will? Where can they find you on the, uh, the interwebs? <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, willgad.com works or Instagram, real willgad, or, you know, if you're in Camor, I'm, I'm around, you know, you got an idea, let's talk. <laughs> I'm pretty open to, to whatever's going on. And yeah, I like meeting people and, you know, learning about the world. So if, if you're interested in that, I'm, I'd love to meet with you. Yeah, that's, that's great. And uh, anyone listening today, uh, if you apply even just a fraction of the things that Will has shared with us in this conversation, it will be just like Will, very difficult to suck at anything that you try. So uh, here, here's to uh, here's to here's to uh, not sucking and applying some of this stuff for your own personal success. Will, been a pleasure, and I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Thank you, and likewise. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.